22 is our place this morning. Genesis chapter 22, and I want us to go again there to verse 1, and we'll be reading through verse 8. 22nd chapter of Genesis, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son. Notice how the Lord repeats that and bears home the fact that this is his only son. It seems almost cruel, doesn't it? As Abraham is reminded of this well-beloved son, the son of promise, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood or cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, As far as the biblical record is at this point, Isaac has been silent. He has not commented. We see no arguing or pleading. Isaac is not a little boy. He's a man. And he speaks to his father. Finally, it says, Father. And he said, My father. And he said, Here am I, son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Notice the lamb. It was not uncommon. The blood sacrifices had already been instituted as a pattern for the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, and as you've heard in the New Testament commentary on this portion of scripture we have added information about abraham's words to the servants we will come again what a statement of faith abraham says when he tells them that we will come again to you in hebrews chapter 11 the bible tells us that he did this by faith faith cometh by hearing And hearing by the word of God, when he was tried, speaking of this very moment, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The seed, the promised seed, the coming Messiah, all of God's promises hinge on this moment. What did Abraham think? The Holy Spirit tells us, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. 
May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our gracious heavenly father, this is your word. And we come to this awesome, awe-inspiring portion of scripture, asking for light and for help. Would you equip me, Lord, to preach your glorious word? Would you open hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel, to the claims of Christ, to the unsearchable riches of your grace? We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Lovingly, firmly, and patiently brought to a place of absolute submission to his heavenly Father's will. Each step, each trial, each lesson that God led him through and has brought him through has brought him to this place of supreme test of offering his only son on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice to God. If we cannot and will not obey in the seemingly small areas of life, God reveals his will to us by his word. We will never be ready for the bigger tests that lie before us all. And they're there. The tests of life are there. Each season of life brings with it circumstances and callings and tests. We never, until we stand before him in glorification, escape the testing and the trying of our faith. Jesus asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why call ye me Lord? And do not the things which I command you. The command of God came years before, didn't it? Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and to a land that I will show thee. Abraham didn't know where he was going, where the pathway would lead and what he would encounter on that pathway, but he had to come to that place where he would leave all that was dear, all that was familiar, all that he owned, all that he could call his, the relationships, the friendships, that he'd been raised there in Ur, and he left it all. That was a test, wasn't it? No small test by any stretch of the imagination, but compared to this test, it is no test at all. But can you not see that Abraham would have no point of reference, no, no knowledge of what to do, or that God would be faithful if he had not proved him when the test came? And so that's why the test come. Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth with gold. The Lord tries me, purifies me. And Job tells us many such things are with him, not just one or two events of life. And we could go, I'm glad that's over with. And, and Job could have said, surely no one will ever be asked any more than I've already been asked of. But after all of that, Job said, many things are with him. If Abraham had not obeyed that test, that test of location, that test of leaving his home, he certainly would not have obeyed in the command here in verse 2. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there. It's very plain, isn't it? God does not gloss over this command to Abraham. You might say those are figurative words, but they were no figurative words at all. Offer thy son on the mountain where I will tell thee for a burnt offering. 
how clear, how stark, how horrible those words must have been to Abraham's ears. How horrible was it? Those of you who have children, you can imagine that request coming to you, the pain, the horror in your heart, the desperation. Here in Genesis 22, we see a vivid type, a clear picture. The Holy Spirit paints for us, and aren't we glad that He does paint for us these portraits of God's grace and of God's will, or we would not be able to comprehend the incomprehensible. God is spirit, and so the Holy Spirit gives him uh, arms and legs and a mouth and tells us about the arm of the Lord and the ways of the Lord and the feet of the Lord. If he did not, we could never comprehend our great God. And God so lovingly became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if we did not have these gifts from the Lord, these pictures, even in the lives of other people, it would be very hard for us to grasp these things. And so we have a type. There are types in the Bible or pictures of teachings of God's ways with men and things that He wants to reveal to us. And here we see a clear picture of God the Father and God the Son. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see the heart of the Father as we see here in Abraham's obedience in offering his only son, Isaac. Very little is said of Isaac here. The emphasis is on the Father. And while we praise the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we often focus on the physical and the bodily work of our Savior, and rightfully so. But the Godhead is co-equal. And we peer here into the heart of God the Father through an earthly father, a man with, by the name of Abraham. And here we see a, a great picture of what will take place one day at Calvary. Only later, only in the New Testament, when we get to Calvary, do we see it. And yet, even there, the portrait focuses on the Son and His obedience and His sacrifice. And so here we have in this chapter... A portrait of God. In Genesis 22, we see the great love. We speak of God's love. But nowhere do we see it clearer than at Calvary. And in this picture that points to Calvary, the love of the Father and the whole transaction, if you will, from the Father's perspective. Romans 8, verse 31 tells us, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice the emphasis here is on Abraham's obedience. We could speak of Isaac's submission, and it is notable. It's no small thing. We learn of our Lord's obedience to the Father's will. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a body, a form of man, and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, sparing himself nothing. And that is marvelous. And we, we focus on the, uh, the, the submission of the Son to the Father's will, but we see the obedience of Abraham, the obedience of the Father. We see in verse 3 that he rose up early. That's noteworthy. He didn't delay. We, we could think of the human part of it would make us want to drag our feet. I mean, can you imagine getting around to this event? 
while we would say there's grace sufficient to do all that God asked for us to do, we can rest assured that it did not feel good on that early morning, no doubt before the sun rose, that Abraham went out and chopped wood and made preparation to offer his only son as a burnt offering. He didn't drag it out like I wonder if what we would be like if we look at our own obedience, sometimes in small things we're slow to respond and the Lord waits long in patience for us to do what he's asked us to do. He rose up early in the morning. Our Lord, we see in the gospel writings, often did the very same thing. We may assume it was before the break of day to do what the Lord had told him to do. Our Lord said, and there in the Luke's gospel, I must be about my father's business. And so should we. There's a work for us to do. There's a call upon your life. We must be about his business. We should do it with zeal and submission and early, uh, give the early part of our life, the best days of our life, the best of our energy and strength to the Lord. What does the scripture say? Remember now thy creator, you young people, in the days of your youth and Paul to Timothy, let no man despise your youth, but wherever we are in life, we should give him the best, the best, the choicest. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and carried it with him. He was prepared. He didn't take for granted that there would be wood there for him. He does his part. He didn't know what, what, if wood would be there when he got to the place of sacrifice, so he planned ahead and did his part. It seems that because of Abraham's age, when you read the record, it seems that he rode the donkey while Isaac and the two helpers walked along. It would take two full days and part of a third day before they reached their destination of Moriah, where one day Jerusalem would be built. The total trip from Beersheba to Moriah would be about 30 miles. We might ask here and wonder, why would God tell Abraham at his age to go so far away from home? Well, couldn't there be, a, if you're going to offer a sacrifice, does it matter where? I mean, could there not be a place closer by? I mean, Abraham was up there in years, and, and to go so far in a treacherous journey and, and no telling what the conditions were and to the wilderness roads and trails and whatever, why couldn't, we might reason, Abraham do this closer at home, a place nearer by? Everything God asks of us is for a reason. We may not ever fully realize it in this life, but we will see it one day that God wastes nothing. He does nothing capriciously, nothing by happenstance. It will all fit together very perfectly in the tapestry that he is weaving in our life. But right now, this dark thread, we may ask, why this thread here and now? It looks so out of place. This could not be part of a beautiful picture that we had imagined. No matter how cumbersome or unreasonable, how hard the request may seem at the time, we know that he does all things well, don't we? And we are assured that all things will work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. Since this sacrifice is to foreshadow the sacrifice that God the Father would display at Calvary for our sin and our salvation through His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Savior, and the only begotten of the Father, there we see the reason for this long and laborious journey. Some commentators you'll read will say that the spot was the exact spot where Solomon later would build the temple for God. The mountains of Moriah, there's several in that area that could be designated as that. And some say this is where Solomon would build the temple and where all the sacrifices that depict Christ would one day be offered. And they cite, because of that, Second Chronicles 3 verse 1, which says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You remember that David had to buy a place to offer a sacrifice after the great disobedience of his people. And there the, the, the man wanted to give it to David, and that's where David makes his declaration, Nay, I'll not take it for nothing. I'll not offer that to the Lord, which doth cost me nothing. And that's the place that some say that later... We know that's where the temple was built. But was it the same place where Abraham is offering Isaac? It is true that later Solomon would build a temple on a mountain in Jerusalem, but I think that the the words of A.W. Pink, his observation, describe it best. He writes, There is little doubt that this particular mountain upon which Isaac was bound to the altar was Calvary itself. Here the mountain is not named. It was one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. It is is significant that Moriah means the Lord will provide. And Calvary was one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. What seems to identify Isaac's mountain with Calvary is not only the marvelous fullness and accuracy of this type that would seem to require it, but the fact that in Genesis 22 verse 14, this mount on which Isaac was offered is definitely termed the Mount of the Lord. Surely this establishes it, for what other save Calvary could be called the Mount of the Lord? Later, God would give the Passover lamb as a picture to Israel of the coming sacrifice of God the Son at Calvary. The Passover lamb if you'll remember, it had to be separated from the flock four days before it was killed, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. And so here it was that, that Isaac was taken by his father Abraham three days before he was to be offered on the altar. Our Lord was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The book of Revelation describes him without spot, without blemish, marked out from eternity past to die for our sins. Two young men, we notice here, went with Isaac to the place of sacrifice. You'll remember that two in the the Bible is the number of witness we often see, where two or three are gathered, in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so some would speak to these two as witnesses, and yet they do not witness this event, do they? They are left, and Abraham and Isaac go farther to a more remote spot for this sacrifice. We are reminded, though, that two men died alongside our Lord on either side of him. These two young men could only go so far. They could not see all that went on between Abraham and Isaac. Even the Holy Spirit does not record, but just part of it, we think. Surely there was more conversation than here, but these men did not hear it. 
And if the Holy Spirit had not recorded it for us, we would not be reading it today. No one could ever fully understand the heart-wrenching moments between Abraham and Isaac, what transpired. And so it is, no one could ever know what transpired between God the Father and God the Son in those three hours of absolute blackness on earth where God threw a veil of blackness over his son, where no gawking eyes could stare and no one could see what went on between the father and the son. But notice, as we've already pointed out, what Abraham says to these two young men in verse 5. Abide ye here. You stay here with the ass. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship. What a peculiar word to use, Abraham. We're going yonder to worship. And we notice he says, and will come again to you. Those words remind us of our Lord's word, that I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into my, myself. But worship? How could Abraham choose such a word of sacrifice? A word that, that would describe the sacrifice, the the gourd that was about to take place, that's worship. Here we see what true worship is. It's amazing what people refer to as worship. How even God's people are confused about what worship is. What we, we rarely hear what true worship is displayed for us very preciously and rare here in this picture. There we'll go yonder to worship. I would tell you that this is the supreme act of worship, giving the Lord everything, absolute, total abandonment to his will. Nothing less is worship. The word worship literally means to bow down. And it speaks of weightiness, of weight, the weight of God's glory, and us bowing down before him, and we bow our heads to pray. We recognize God's majesty and His glory and His might and our unworthiness and His holiness. And all those things are in the, that figure, that type of bowing. But worship is much, much more than a physical position. We don't always bow to pray. Sometimes we pray as we're going, as we're fleeing, as we're in the midst of our work. And although we realize what we say when we're bowing down, that, that physical uh, act of coming before our Lord. But worship is more than a physical position or an emotional feeling. It's much more than singing or preaching or meeting with other believers. Worshiping God in its purest form is bowing our will to God's will. Realizing and acknowledging that His will is best, that whatever He requires is right. Abraham has already prayed that, hasn't he? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He was right in judging Sodom and in sparing Lot in his sovereignty, and he's right if he asked Abraham to offer Isaac. If he was right back then, he is right here. Whatever God asks because of his holiness and his perfection can only be that which is right. Oh, would we carve that deep into our hearts? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Then there's nothing left but to bow before him in submission, 
When we surrender our wills to his, we're saying, Lord, you're right. This hurts. This is horrible in my sight. I cannot call it good. It doesn't feel good. You can even say, I don't even want this. How often do we pray that he remove things from our lives? Did you take it away? That He changed the circumstances and sometimes he does not. Sometimes he says, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. God's will might involve waiting. The hardest thing for a human being to do is to wait. Abraham had to learn that lesson, didn't he? He ran, ran ahead to Egypt. He, he went with Hagar and the, the surrogate birth and thinking they could help God fulfill his word. It's so hard to wait. We want it done. We want it done yesterday. And we see the words ASAP from our bosses. And we, we have our own pressure on ourselves to get it done before it was even asked. And the microwave and the, everything is so pressed. And we want it already done and delivered to us. Isaiah 30, verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait. Oh, wait? Lord, I need you to answer this today. I'm sick now. The bill is due now. The circumstance has to be dealt with now. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. God's will may involve waiting. God's will often involves suffering. Acts chapter 5 verse 41 speaks of the apostles rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer shame for his sake. Something that we don't hear much of and, and think about that, that, that God could require us to suffer, suffer shame or, or pain for our, call, for our stand for him, for being aligned with him as we see believers all across the world today just because we're so insulated here in luxury and in, 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 in wealth here. I want to remind you that as we meet here on the Lord's Day all across this world, there have been believers who have been afraid to meet. Their pastors are in prison. They're, it is illegal for them to do what the Lord has commanded them to do, to go and preach and make disciples. And they, they serve and, and worship and live for the Lord under the direst circumstances. And yet we are called in, to count it a privilege and honor to suffer for him. When, at, when Paul was saved, remember what Ananias had to tell him. God tells him he will suffer many things for my name's sake. He was told that at the beginning before he had ever preached a message you will go through all kinds of things for my sake. Romans 12, verse 1, those verses that we seem to think are relegated for youth camps and for some people somewhere. But Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. True worship always requires a sacrifice. But when we do His will from the heart as unto the Lord and not unto men, or to our own understanding, our own feelings, it is then and only then that we worship God. Everything else that we may call singing, praying, is an outflowing of that heart determination. Whatever you say, Lord, is true and right, and I will do it. Abraham and Isaac are going to worship God. And so he well might he say, we are going to worship and then we're going to return. Abraham knew full well that whatever the sacrifice would be, whether it was a, a lamb or Isaac, that it would cost, that it would be something that he would be required to relinquish. And though they did not fully understand his word, they believed it. And they couldn't see how all the pieces of the puzzle would fit together. They knew they must obey, and they trusted it and were willing to obey. While we see primarily Abraham is the focal figure here, let us not overlook Isaac. Can you imagine being so submissive to his father? Faith, someone has said, has feet. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. And here again we see submission to God's will as the ultimate act of worship in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See him there in the garden in great anguish of soul crying out, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In Hebrews 5 verse 8, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Matthew 8 verse 20 speaks of the fact that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Literally in the Greek, it means bow his head. And so we might say if worship is bowing down, bowing the head, the literal meaning of the word worship, and Jesus had nowhere to bow his head, he had no place to worship. He was shut out of the the temple, although he went and proved his father's deity my father's house shall be called a house of prayer but it was not there he was welcomed he had no home his place was in the olive trees or wherever he could find early in the, in the morning he left heaven on a mission to do the will of god his every movement on earth was an act of pure worship you can point to anything jesus did he was doing it in obedience to the father's will at great cost in, in relinquishing his will, not my will, but thine be done. It went all the way to Calvary. Not only did he volunteer and relinquish his will and become a, a helpless human infant, one of the most amazing and hard to understand things in all the scripture, but he grew up in obedience, in perfect obedience to the word of God and to the will of God. He was willingly nailed for our sins. Never for one moment think that Jesus was a martyr that he somehow got caught up with, that he was, could not, there was no way out for him. He says in John 19, verse 30, he cries out, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. At last, someone has said, he had a place to lay his head, to bow down his head in worship to God the Father. He totally and perfectly and completed, completely finish the will of God for himself. Isaac went willingly. 
Bible tells us there in verse 6 of our text, and they went both of them together. John 10, verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. This commandment, God the Son will become a, a, take on a body and lay down His life for our sins. God the Son fully obeyed the will of the Father. And because the both of them went together, we can, see, we can have salvation and be forgiven of eternal life. We see there in verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, that repetitive calling, he must have had to stop Abraham. It must, we sense there that he's getting his attention. Abraham, Abraham, the knife suspended in air, no doubt. And he said, here am I. There's only one thing to do when the Lord calls. Even Eli had enough sense to tell Samuel, when you hear the voice of the Lord, say, here am I, Lord. When the word of God is preached, when the Holy Spirit takes a verse of Scripture and applies it to your heart, when He impresses to your heart and mind the teaching of the Scripture, there's only one thing to say. Lord, here I am. And by that, we're relinquishing ourselves and saying, Lord, speak. Whatever it is, not only here am I, but that has the intent of I'm going, I'm on the way, I will do what you tell me to do. Abraham calls the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, or the, also it can mean either the Lord will provide, and some Hebrew scholars are in difference of opinion exactly what it means. The Lord will provide, or also the Lord will appear. Hebrew scholars differ as to which it literally means, and they argue on several vowel points of the word there. To, to, and I don't know anything about Hebrew, but I will tell you this. I think it means both of them. We do know the Lord will provide, and we know the Lord appeared here, didn't he? Henry Morris writes, perhaps both meanings are appropriate. Apparently later, Moses made an editorial insertion here, calling attention to the fact that even in his day, men still pointed at that mountain, saying, that in the mountains of the Lord provision will be made. A wonderful prophecy of faith that in the fullness of time, God would provide a lamb to die for man's sins, just as he provided a ram in the thicket to place in, in Isaac's place on the altar. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven 
And as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Of course, he's referring to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham returned to his young men. He told them they would, didn't he? And they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham. And he went back home in full obedience to the Lord. We think of this beautiful picture here. This scene that causes our heart to stop as we think of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son. Then we come to Calvary where we see the great display of God the Father's love for the lost. Jesus Christ, the well-beloved, the darling of heaven, the only begotten of the Father, laying down his life for our salvation. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful portrait that you have painted for us. And I plead, Lord, with the Spirit of God that he would take these truths and show them to us and to those who may not know you as Savior. Lord, I fear that so often we've heard the story and people may rely on some decision of the past or some feeling or something that they've never truly come to a place where they've seen their need of the Savior and to be absolutely, to become yours and for you to take over their lives. If you're in that situation today, I plead with you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Let me ask you, are you resting in Christ alone for salvation? If not, I beg you to put aside your unbelief and your rebellion against God and religion or whatever it is that may be standing between you and the Lord and just humbly receive the salvation that Christ offers you. The Bible says that we must be made right with the Lord. We must be reconciled to God. and He's given you this opportunity, after hearing his gospel, to be saved. You can turn from yourself and your sin just now, taking him at his word and with your whole heart, tell him of your need for his salvation. You can call on him. The Bible promises, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, would you take your word in this time of prayer, this time of coming before you, and I pray you to show it to every heart. Thank you for your holy and infallible word. Now bless it, we pray in Jesus' name.